This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Welcome to a supplemental edition of the NACOcast. In this episode, guest host Paul Wells, author and political editor of McLean's Magazine, presents his pre-concert chat entitled, Brahms, Between Yesterday and Tomorrow. Enjoy the program. Good evening, bonsoir. Merci d'être venu au Centre National des Arts ce soir. Thank you for coming to the National Arts Center to talk about music and then to hear some music. And then probably to talk about music afterward, but that's up to you. My name is Paul Wells. I'm the political editor at McLean's Magazine. And I've, after three years, I still don't know why they let me do this, but every once in a while they let me come in here and talk about music. Uh, and tonight, we're going to talk about Johannes Brahms who's the guest of honor for tonight's concert. Uh, let me begin, as he so often did, with uh, almost no preliminaries, and I'll play a piece of music for you, and then we'll talk about it. This is a piece that's um, close to my heart. Uh, in about 1980, when I was in grade 10 at uh, Sarnia Northern Collegiate Institute in Sarnia, Ontario, I managed to get into the senior concert band conducted by Scott Milligan who grew up in Ottawa, and some of you may even remember his family. Um, and we immediately in September started rehearsing to play at the um, uh, commencement where all the older kids would get their uh, diplomas. And in among all the other stuff that we played, uh, we started to rehearse this piece. And after we had hammered out some of the dance, it sounded a little bit like this. You'll have to get the record if you want to know what, what comes next. Um, does anyone recognize that piece? That's the Academic Festival Overture of Brahms. It's a piece that he wrote for commencement addresses. And 100 years later, we were still playing it at ours. Uh, it's funny what sticks with you. So much of what my high school band sounds like, most of what a high school band plays. 
Uh, but our teacher had high standards, and we also played that. And to this day, I can I can I can hum for you every note of every part that every musician in the orchestra plays. Um, uh, I was in Warsaw a few years ago, and the New York Philharmonic came, and for their encore after their main program, they started playing that, and it and it stands out as one of my really great concert-going experiences. I picked that partly because it allowed me to begin by getting all sappy and nostalgic for you, but also because it, it, it shows a few of the characteristics of Brahms's music. It is very smart. He rolls out a bunch of different thematic material in very meticulous and orderly fashion. He has a lot to say and he says it uh, with tremendous musical intelligence. It starts in the middle of a car chase, as so much of his music does. Uh, Brahms comes from Hamburg, which is a working class uh, industrial town, dock town, uh, where they don't really stand on ceremony uh, to this day. And this is reflected in his music, where so many other composers, even some of the ones he idolized, like Beethoven, would start with a long sort of introductory material before they got into the serious stuff. Uh, Brahms skips all that, he skips the introduction. Uh, and, and goes right into the meat of the, of, the, of the material. That is true also of every movement of the Third Symphony that you're going to hear tonight. Uh, he, he, uh, he doesn't stand on ceremony. Uh, it's sometimes tremendously lush uh, music with sort of swelling French horns, um, um, very uh, um, rich music. It's like, you're, it's like you're swimming in caramel sometimes. And that's also characteristic of Brahms. Um, I'm usually in charge of what we play on the radio or on the on the on the iPod when when we're driving around town, and I get away. My my spouse lets me get away with a lot of stuff, but uh, whenever I'm playing Brahms, Lisa goes uh, usually at some point without noticing even that's what's going on. She goes, "Could you turn that down?" Because it's in the nature of this music that you have to concentrate all of your attention on it. It can't merely be a distraction because it's not mere music. It if it's playing in the background. Uh, suddenly the background jumps to the front and you have a hard time concentrating on what you should be concentrating on. And the other thing about Brahms' music that, it, it, that is perhaps less of a compliment is that it is sometimes a little brisk and emotionally distant. It is sometimes um, music that is easier to admire than to love. Although those of us who have uh, grown up loving Brahms all have a few pieces that we love unreservedly. In, in some cases, he's keeping a bit of distance from the listener. And uh, that was true in his life, too. Uh, Brahms, in a few adjectives, is, uh, was often brittle, a little passive-aggressive. And there's something wistful about him. There's something of sort of the unattained dream in the music of Brahms and in the life of Brahms. Um, it was, he, he had a very short temper and you never knew what could, what could set him off. Near the end of his life, one of his friends said to him, you know, Johannes, you've been under, underappreciated. I think, I don't think the world has given you your due. And, and he took that as, as uh, an accusation of failure and he blew up and he said, my God, what do you want? I've gotten far enough. He would describe in letters to his friends uh, pieces he was working on in ways that, uh, uh, suggest that he hardly dared talk about what he was working on because he didn't want to jinx it. So when he was writing his second piano concerto, the longest piece he ever wrote, 45 minutes or more in most performances, just this huge sprawling epic thing, he wrote a letter to a good friend, somebody that he trusted, and he said, 
uh, I have written a tiny, tiny piano concerto with a tiny, tiny wisp of a scherzo. Um, that's like saying that the Pacific Ocean is moist. And, but the, the, that sort of rhetorical trick comes up very often in his writing. Um, I'm indebted for a lot of my analysis uh, and a lot of my uh, direct quotes today um, to the outstanding 1995 uh, biography of Brahms written by an American composer named Jan Swafford. The title of the book is Brahms, and it's um, really extraordinary. I do a lot of research for these uh, talks, and I have really grown to love the Swafford biography of Brahms. Uh, and he writes that Brahms's reputation has largely run in the course that critics laid out in his own lifetime. Brahms the conservative the abstractionist, the great unifier of classical and romantic streams. And beyond that have been the millions who love his music and the musicians who admire it the way a bricklayer admires a straight, sturdy wall. And there is that kind of um, German efficiency in his music uh, that, that um, uh, means the musicians always learn something new when they play his stuff, uh, that there's a lot going on in it. It's complex, multi-layered. Um, and, uh, and that sort of perfectionism that is uh, key to him. Um, it's hard to know him much more than that, and it was equally hard to really know the man when he was alive and when he was part of your life. Uh, there was a sort of emotional distance from Brahms. Um, and he actually liked that, and he was careful to protect that, that distance. Uh, papers and manuscripts, musical sketches and receipts, Swafford writes, he either tossed out or burned or committed to the nearest river. This is a man who tried to erase any uh, evidence that he had ever actually existed. His maid was required to leave the lid of the, his wastebasket open at all times. It was his most important item of furniture. And it's an odd contradiction because he was actually a, uh, an, an enthusiastic student of musical history, not only of the notes that his predecessors had left behind. He used to go to libraries and take out Brahms manuscripts and copy out uh, copy Brahms manuscripts, he would take out uh, Johann Sebastian Bach manuscripts and copy them out note for note. Because when a younger musician copies out something that an older musician left behind note for note, in the process of doing that, you can see the relationships between the notes, you can see how the lines move against each other, how the harmonies move, and that was his way of making Bach's music part of his own language. But he also studied and kept in his library the letters, uh, the correspondence of earlier uh, musicians, their biographies. He had an eye on the people who were writing about musicians in his own society at the time. Um, and Swafford says that the contradiction is at the heart of Brahms. This eager student of history did everything he could to eradicate his own. Now, as some of you may know, I published at the end of last year a biography, a political biography of Stephen Harper, and I can't help thinking of the resemblance between the two guys. Harper is an enthusiastic student of political history and of the work of his predecessors. He can talk at length about uh, the, 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 the way that John Chrétien got his agenda passed and the way that he um, uh, got re-elected, uh, but he's very careful not to leave behind much of a uh, um, physical evidence that there was actually a guy named Stephen Harper. And similarly, Brahms was very much the same sort of thing. Now, 
But let's go back to that idea of the, of the great sturdy wall that he left behind whenever he wrote. Uh, here's another uh, example of his work. This is from his fourth symphony, my favorite. And I thought it was handy to play examples from the fourth symphony because uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ruin the surprise of the third symphony tonight if you're hearing it for the first time. Um, the, the, the sort of imposing majesty of his comp com compositions is what I find most impressive, like this. emphasize that, I, that that's not an excerpt from the middle of the movement. That's the way the symphony begins. Um, they, they, they say also in Hollywood that you should try and get into a shot as late as possible and get out of it as early as possible. And there's something very Hollywoodian in, 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 in the way Brahms does stuff. His last and greatest symphony begins as though it had already been going on for a while and you just showed up. Um, but he had competition uh, in terms of branding and, 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 and salesmanship from some of the most extravagant composers of the time. And uh, there were a lot of people at the time he was writing who found Brahms a little bit wanting. They found this uh, material that is, is not trying to tell a human story, it's not programmatic, it's not trying to depict a storm or, or the, the battle of the gods or something. They found it a little simplistic. I mean, you had Strauss who said, my music is about the struggle of the everyman against the forces of nature. And you had Wagner who said, I'm, this is about Wotan up in his lair planning the downfall of the other gods. And, and, and Brahms said, well, I've got a descending two notes and then I invert it and then I take it down a tone. And, and a lot of critics said, well, what is that? Um, so that, the, the, that famous fourth symphony that begins, do, 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 do. Uh, a nasty critic in Vienna at the time actually set words to it. He, uh, he wrote in his review, es viel im wie der mal nichts ein. I've got some friends here who speak German. I'm told that what, 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 what the critic wrote was, Yet again, he had no ideas. Uh, so it's hard out, it's hard out there for a, for a, great, a great composer sometimes. Um, a little bit of biography. Brahms was born in 1833 uh, in Hamburg to a family that was working class at the best of times and, and often quite poor. Now, Hamburg is in the north of uh, Germany. It's a... Uh, uh, it's a port city and an industrial city, and it's an unfussy city. In musical circles, the nickname for Hamburg was the unmusical town. There was music there, but nothing really fancy, not like in Leipzig or, or, or some of those places. Certainly not like in Vienna. Uh, Brahms's father was a small-time symphonic string player and an odd job man, carpenter, handyman around town. Um, and uh, 
he was a little bit reluctant when his kid uh, wanted to follow him into the family business because he's a very practical-minded man. At four years old, he, um, he uh, uh, allowed Johannes to take some uh, violin lessons, some cello lessons, a little bit of, uh, of horn lessons. But the kid wanted to play piano, and the father was very disapproving. He said, there are no piano players in the Hamburg uh, orchestra. There's, there's no work in that line of work. But uh, even though he was a kind of a pale and, and, and scrawny little uh, fellow, uh, Johannes had some perseverance, and he finally essentially bullied his dad into letting him take piano lessons. So at seven, his father took him off to a piano teacher around town, Otto Friedrich Willibald Kossel, and said, teach him everything you know. It took about three years for that to happen. Uh, by the time he was 10, Kossel said that he had actually taught Brahms pretty much everything that it was possible to teach uh, uh, a young player. And he had his first recital. They put an ad in the paper and they hired a, a string quartet for him to play with and so on. And he did a pretty good job. He was quite a good piano player already at 10. And uh, immediately this sort of shady promoter fellow comes up to him and sidles up to Herr Brahms and says, you know, we could take this 10-year-old kid to America and tour him as a prodigy. And he could do all the stuff that Mozart did when he was a kid. He could stand on his head and spit wooden nickels and then play backwards and all, all the stuff you see in Amadeus, and he'll be a big star. He didn't actually say all the stuff you see in Amadeus. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing. Um, and the family, uh, the father suddenly saw uh, dollar signs or taller signs in his, in his eyes, and they sold the uh, family a sewing goods shop so that they could finance this trip to America. Herr Kossel, the piano teacher, was horrified. He knew that this was the easiest way to burn out a young talent, was to turn him into essentially a circus uh, routine. And so he immediately went to his own piano teacher, Herr Markson, and said, you have to take Brahms under your, under your wing. I know he's young, I know he doesn't seem like much, but you really have to take care of him because otherwise they're gonna haul him off to America and make him play backwards. And so Markson did take him on and managed to kibosh this idea of the tour in America. And again, he was getting tugged at the sleeve by a young Johannes who always had a pretty strong idea what he wanted done. And the kid said, you know, pretty good piano player, but what I really want to do is compose. And again, Herr Markson, much like Brahms' own father said, there's no money in that. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't let up and he wouldn't let up. And finally he started at the age of 12 and 13 to start to learn how to compose. Something else happened to him at about that time, about the time that a kid enters uh, adolescence. The family was poor, and because they had sold their sewing goods shop to finance a trip to America that never happened, they were unusually poor, and they needed money any way they could get it. So Johannes Brahms, at the age of 12, not quite 13 years old, starts to go and play in the pubs in the St. Pauli district down by the docks in Hamburg. Now, some of you may know, I swear I did not, that St. Pauli is notoriously the red light district in Hamburg. Vince knows. Okay, very good. Uh, even today, it is the uh, red light district. Back then, it was maybe a slightly more picturesque red light district. There was a 13-year-old kid in the corner playing pop songs on the, on the piano while the St. Pauli girls would serve a beer or a song or a dance or whatever else the gentlemen of the docks needed uh, served. And um, Brahms would often, at, as a young teenager, come, come stumbling home at, uh, at dawn after a long night of playing in the St. Pauli pubs uh, drunk. Uh, he had a, not, not, not one of history's worst drinking problems, but he had a substantial drinking problem for the rest of his life. And he had a really serious problem in his conception of and relation to women. Years later in Vienna, he broke down in tears and he said to a friend of his, 
You tell me I should have the same respect, the same exalted homage for women that you have. You expect that of a man cursed with a childhood like mine. And Swafford writes that this experience in the locale, the pubs of, 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 uh, of St. Pauli, uh, taught him to hide. He would live as a revered master with something to hide. In and out of music, he would become adept at masking his feelings and his identity. Um, fortunately, after almost a year of really bad news in these, in these awful uh, bordellos, essentially, uh, some good news came. Uh, he, he was shipped off to the house of a family friend in Vincennes, which was then about a half day's travel outside of Hamburg, in the forest, in the lovely countryside of Germany. And there he restored his health. He started a lifelong habit of taking summer retreats in the countryside. And uh, he landed at, again, still a very young age. He was about 14 at this point. He got an offer to conduct the local men's choir. There's not a lot of great musicians in Vincent. They said, let's get this kid to conduct the men's choir. And this set up... Um, a fondness for choral music that uh, is one of the maybe underappreciated ingredients in all of Brahms's life. And some of his early writing was for the kind of men's choir that he was conducting then. Uh, this is a, um, uh, from a collection of five songs that he wrote for men's choir. Uh, this is a tune called Ich Schwing Mein Horn. Lisa never tells me to turn that one down at home. That's, that's one of the favorites uh, on my iPod. Um, and I guess one of the ways to describe how Brahms conceived of, of vocal music is that he always thought of it as choral music. He didn't write operas. He saw that as, 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 as ridiculous theater. Uh, he didn't write an awful lot of leader songs for a solo uh, singer, although he did write some. Uh, he, when, when he thinks of the human voice, he tends to think in terms of choirs, which means that the Schicksal's lead that you're going to hear tonight is very characteristic of the, the relatively small amount of, of, of vocal music that he wrote, because it is choral music. Uh, I want to um, say a little bit about the choir master for tonight's concert, because he's the choir master for almost every concert, where you see the NACO backed by uh, a bunch of singers, professional and amateur. Uh, his name is Dwayne Wolf. And he's a reflection of the very high level of quality that they bring here sometimes without, e without even really necessarily always drawing your attention to it. Dwayne Wolfe's other gig is as the choir master for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Uh, 
He lives in Chicago, and he comes up every time there's a big choral production, the Verdi Requiem, the, 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 the uh, Mozart Requiem that they did uh, uh, not, not that long ago here, Beethoven Ninth Symphony, uh, and, and uh, the, this Brahms. And, and when he uh, is one of the guys who walks on stage tonight after the concert, he looks a little bit like Santa Claus. That's Dwayne Wolf from Chicago. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that Brahms is cold or distant. That doesn't stand up against uh, the, um, the example of the music I just played. He can be kind of a confounding and contradictory figure. His music is so rich and busy and extravagant. But there's very often this, t this trace of skepticism, this sort of Stephen Harper reserve and distance, uh, and a kind of uh, meticulous care that separates him from all those around him who were losing their heads, the Schumanns and the Wagners and the Lists and, and the romantic uh, heroes of the time. Swafford writes, against the chaos of life, especially the chaos of emotional life, Brahms would create something as classically perfect as humanly conceivable. He built walls around darkness and imperfection. Work at it over and over again, ran his famous rule, until there is not a note too much or too little, not a bar you could improve on. Whether it is also beautiful is an entirely different matter, but perfect it must be. Uh, I, I can imagine reading that in Hamburg and, and everyone going, yes, perfect it must be, beautiful later. Um, it wasn't his serious music that made him money. Uh, it was almost as true then as it is now that you don't get rich writing, writing uh, um, compositions for symphony orchestras. What made him um, uh, relatively well off, actually quite well off towards the end of his life, was his Hungarian music. And it's so different from what you're going to hear tonight that I want to play a taste of it. This is his Hungarian dance number five. <laughs> Once again, I feel I have to keep protesting that I did not come in in the middle of something that started differently. No, it's it, boom, you know, uh, it, it, it's, there's something almost quite mercenary about it. You want some music? Here's some music. Um, Brahms was not particularly Hungarian. He didn't have Hungarian roots, although ethnic origins were a bit, uh, a bit uh, vague and, and, and hard to delineate in those days in Central Europe. Uh, he met some Hungarian music, he, his musicians. He liked uh, what, they, what they did. He studied uh, the language, and he appropriated it in his own way. And it was this music that made him uh, a wealthy man. Um, now... In, in days like today, where we, we, we talk about Brahms as one of the three Bs, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, where when Brahms is on the program, you're supposed to nod and, and be very appreciative of it. It's hard to recapture the extent to which he was a controversial figure in his own time, and not the way that great artists so often are, as being a sort of a rebel and a, and a, and a, and a, and a crazy guy who broke all the rules. Brahms was controversial in the, in the latter part of the 19th century for, 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 for following too many of the rules when everyone else was breaking them. A lot of his colleagues saw him as a little bit of a stick in the mud. 
he had a troubled relationship with a lot of these guys. He once sent, when he was 17 years old, he sent a parcel of music off to the great Robert Schumann, Herr Schumann, I want you to listen to my music and see if there's something in here that might be of value. It was a canny move because Schumann was not only a great composer, he was the great, one of the great writers of music, writers about music. He was essentially a critic uh, at the time, and so it would be a great way to get the word out. But Schumann sent that package of uh, manuscripts back unopened, and it was... Uh, Brahms was able to throw that on the pile of traumatic experiences of his youth. Uh, he once went um, with a violin player, a friend of his, to go and meet Franz Liszt, and uh, Liszt uh, set out to impress the young man by playing one of his uh, uh, extravagant, florid piano pieces, and he looked over at Brahms, and Brahms had fallen asleep. And for the rest of his life, Liszt never conducted uh, a work by Brahms. So... But it was actually Arnold Schoenberg in the middle of the 20th century or, 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 or near the middle of the 20th century who started to rehabilitate Brahms as a composer that serious, compo that serious musicians could take seriously. Uh, he wrote an essay called Brahms the Progressive about 40 years after Brahms died in 1897 uh, in which he said that Brahms was a great influence on himself, on Arnold Schoenberg which was an amazing thing to say because Schoenberg's music at the time was, was um, uh, seemed almost uh, random, uh, dissonant, uh, hard for, for um, even open-minded modern audiences to follow. And he said, yeah, I got a lot of that from Brahms. He wrote, the sense of logic and economy and the power of inventiveness which build melodies of so much natural fluency deserve the admiration of every music lover who expects more than sweetness and beauty from music. But though I know offhand only one example of such complexity of construction by a composer before Brahms, and by that I mean, of course, Mozart, I must state that structural analysis reveals yet greater merits. And then he goes on for page after page of music theory, which I will spare you. And, uh, and Schoenberg concludes, at a time when all believed in expression, Brahms, without renouncing beauty and emotion, proved to be a progressive in a field that had not been cultivated for half a century. He would have been a pioneer if he had simply returned to Mozart, but he did not live on inherited fortune. He made his own. Now, much brighter people than me could spend the evening debating whether, whether Brahms was, a, was, a, was, a, was a, uh, uh, the last of the classicists, the last of the, of the people who believed that the symphony form was the best form to express themselves, or whether he was a forebear of all of the extraordinary invention of the 20th century. Um, to some extent, for folks like us today, it's a, it's a, it's a mug's game to engage in those debates. Um, we can't hear the forms because, because we didn't grow up playing piano, many of us in the home. We can't hear the forms that Brahms is clinging to um, as if to a life draft. We can't hear the transgressions of the guys like Schumann and those others who, 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 who thought of themselves as, as, as more modern than Brahms. All we can hear at the end is that quality and that perfection that he insisted in building into every piece. And it is that... Uh, immaculate, impeccable attention to detail and to craft that has made Brahms one of the great uh, influences and comforts in my life. And I hope that you get something out of it uh, too. And I hope that you look forward to tonight's concert. Thank you very much for coming. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. 
email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store, where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NEC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre. Thank you.